0: Thanks for tuning in to the final episode in our three-part series on well-being and burnout in the emergency department. In this episode, we have Westmead Emergency Registrar, Dr. Diane Premnath, who will be presenting a paper by Brand et al. titled, Whole System Approaches to Improving the Health and Well-Being of Healthcare Workers, a Systematic Review.
1: This systematic review was published in the PLOS online or the Public Library of Science online journal in 2017. The authors were all based in the UK. Now the authors explain in their introduction that they were aware of numerous studies that examined individual-based interventions for improving outcomes of healthcare workers so they wanted to do a systematic review that focused on whole health system interventions. To give you a bit of background there was a systematic review commissioned by the UK Department of Health in 2009 called the Buermen review which reviewed a large number of international healthy workplace interventions and recommended five whole system changes to improve staff health and well-being. These recommendations were understanding local staff needs, staff engagement at all levels, strong visible leadership, support for health and well-being at senior management and board level and focus on management capability and capacity to improve staff health and well-being. The aim of this systematic review was to identify whole system healthy workplace interventions in healthcare settings that incorporated combinations of the Boorman recommendations that I just mentioned and determine whether or not they improve staff health and well-being. The authors conducted a literature search using key terms and applied it to various databases such as Medline, EMBASE, among others, and also searched other government databases, such as the UK Department of Health. They included papers from all different languages and they didn't have a time limit either. From this, they were able to find about 14,500 records. Then they applied a set of inclusion criteria, which was defined prior to the search. And after applying this inclusion criteria, they only came back with 11 studies that actually fit. The authors did acknowledge that process was open to a degree of subjective interpretation, and they did try and take measures to mitigate this risk by having multiple reviewers and creating a sample of papers on which they tested the application of the inclusion criteria. The authors then went through each of the studies and listed various data points, including study design, whether or not the intervention was designed to address a local need, which stakeholders were involved in the development and implementation treatment of any control group and primary and secondary outcomes. The authors then examined each study in great detail to examine its quality and validity. And they included this thorough analysis in the paper. So I'll just have a quick chat about the study uh, quality and how this impacted their analysis and results. So out of these 11 studies, five lacked a control group, two had no follow-up, and one didn't report any follow-up information because the baseline and follow-up questionnaires were not linked to the participant. Also, they noted that follow-up periods varied considerably. Attrition rates were also high for most of the studies. Five out of eight of the studies reported attrition rates between 20 to 50%. In contrast, one study reported no attrition. They also noted that there was a large heterogeneity to the types of studies and the measures used. And it was difficult to make meaningful comparisons between the studies. For example, three studies used an objective outcome measure of health, BMI. Nine other studies used subjective self-report measures, and no two of these studies used the same subjective self-report measures. None of the studies described the interventions that were used in sufficient detail to allow replication. Also, the interventions performed in each study were different. For example, one study had mindfulness sessions as the intervention, and another ran a healthy eating lifestyle program. Participant recruitment in the studies was also variable. Nine studies offered the intervention to all hospital or health centre staff. One study offered the intervention on a first-come, 1st serve basis to 400 out of 3,000 staff members, and another offered intervention to staff working in an area that had a workplace wellness champion working in it. So in terms of the results, the authors found that studies addressing Borman recommendations demonstrated improved healthcare worker outcomes in general. In all studies, all interventions were deemed by their authors to at least be partially effective. Two studies reported statistically significant improvement in objectively measured physical health and eight in subjective mental health. Six studies reported statistically significant positive changes in subjectively assessed health behaviours. Four studies they noted suggested that Greater participation led to greater individual benefit and potentially also a dose response effect. They also noted in studies where participants were able to choose which well being activity they participated in, had better outcomes than in studies where participants were assigned to a particular activity. I guess to summarize, the authors performed a systematic review addressing a specific question related to these five Borman recommendations and found that there was evidence suggesting. That providing whole system healthy workplace interventions can improve health and well being and promote healthier behaviors in healthcare staff. They also reported that there may be a dose response effect, such that greater participation in great interventions leads to greater individual effect. Unfortunately, due to the heterogeneity and poor study design of the papers included, they were not able to perform any meaningful comparisons across studies or perform any kind of quantitative analysis. The authors acknowledge that they had limited evidence and have identified this topic as an area for future studies.
0: Thanks so much, Diane. That was a really great summary of what was actually quite a difficult paper to read initially, I felt, just in that there were lots of different studies included with very different methodology and interventions. So thank you. I just wanted to open it up to the floor and kind of ask everyone what their take on this paper was.
2: I suppose what I got from it was like, do something. Rather than do nothing, and it might help.
0: I don't necessarily think, personally, you know, instituting a healthy eating program or measuring staff BMI is necessarily the answer to our well being woes. But I do think that perhaps just getting an initiative off the ground that involved all staff members and maybe brought together a sense of community might have been behind some of the improved outcomes measured. But I did think it was an interesting paper from that point of view.
3: I think you could almost argue, again, no matter which intervention you put in, is the value in it that you're actually demonstrating that, you know, you value your staff in some way. So whether that's their physical health or their emotional health or their time, whatever it is, it's a demonstration, isn't it, that you value them?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think that's really important. What kind of whole system interventions do you think might actually help in Australian emergency departments? Like if we were going to put something in place, is there anything you think might be of value? I was going to say getting rid of access block probably. (laughs) Exactly. It will never happen though. I mean, the only thing I could think of that I thought might actually be helpful, but maybe that's just because I'm coming from my perspective, would be maybe getting some discussion groups together to actually talk freely about the issues we face at work not necessarily with the plan of coming up with any you know epiphanies or like any massive solutions but just kind of generating discussion between different staff members nursing staff interns consultants and just kind of making the issues we face something that we actually can talk about and maybe a little bit more tangible than going home at the end of the day feeling really drained and wondering why
4: I think that's a great idea. I think he brings together two of their points, actually, which is it provides a sense of community between the people that you work with, so it's bringing people together. And if somebody topped down into organising this, it shows that the system cares. I think both of these things were the thing that would mainly shown to show a positive result in these people.
0: Like when I thought about how you'd actually implement that, I was concerned about the possibility of just generating a space where everyone becomes super negative and really more upset about the working environment. And the challenges we face. But I think if it was mediated by the right people, and maybe with some involvement from someone like Natalie, it might actually just give us all the space to feel seen and heard, and maybe talk about different ways that people are able to cope.
2: NHS put this really huge document in 2018. I have it open in front of me. It's 151 pages long, trying to look at exactly that, like, what do you actually need to do to make doctors perceive their own well-being to be better. They came up with the ABC of doctors' core needs. So the A is autonomy. You need to have a sense of control over your work, over your life, over your work-life balance, access to fair rostering, access to fair leaves, that kind of sense of equitable rostering. B was the sense of belonging. So needing to feel part of a team and cared for and valued within that team. And then C was competence. So you needed to feel like you were experiencing workplace effectiveness and that you believed in your own ability to deliver valued outcomes such as high quality care. That's a nice way, I think, for an organization to look at like, well, okay, how do we actually deliver that?
5: Felicity has made a couple of attempts of organizing like slightly more informal Ways of doing effectively the same thing right there's been like you know like a wine and cheese thing you know just after work I think those achieve the same core need of like you know you feel a sense of community you're able to talk about some of the issues that you face but then also it means that when you go to work you're seeing friends as opposed to just seeing a bunch of people that you have to interact with in order to get things done and that probably adds an element of positivity to your day, you know, because you're seeing people that you actually want to see. One other thing that I was going to suggest was, sometimes it's worth thinking about trying to factor into every shift, something that reminds people of why work is interesting. We all work in very sort of intense and stressful environments. But like, if there can be you know, a moment of teaching or a moment of doing some training or a moment of demonstrating something. Those moments allow you to both interact in a collegiate way, but it also exposes trainees and junior doctors to things that are actually intellectually stimulating as opposed to draining. And I think that those things slightly fill your cup instead of emptying it. I think that that's something that's actually achievable to sort of work into a shift as opposed to perhaps some of the other things at a higher level.
4: I mean, with that in mind, another small thought might be, we were talking earlier about recognition. So recognition of what you do. We can talk in a second about Laura's brilliance box, but even on just an individual basis. So you've got juniors, why not tell them thank you for what you've done. You've done an excellent job today. These are things that we all can do on an individual level. And then beyond that, there are some organizational things. So I might get Laura. Um, if you don't mind telling us about your brilliance box idea. Yeah, absolutely. It's
2: not unique and I don't claim any ownership over it. I just try to operate it in our department. So I think the general idea is just actually formalizing the process of positive feedback because otherwise we don't actually ever get that or rarely get that. We only ever get formal negative feedback. Like we all know who it is in our department who either carries the complaints portfolio or the M&M portfolio and they pull you aside and be like, remember that patient you saw? And your heart sinks or you see their name in an email and you're like, oh my God, what did I miss now? And so anything that kind of pushes that to the other end where like, if someone sees your name in an email, it's like, yes, I'm going to get some positive feedback and be told good job for a change, you know? So that's what the brilliance box aims to do. And this, I think uh, Liverpool has their awesome and amazing or The nurses are really proactive here about doing their most valued player for the shift and just like actually giving people some positive recognition. And that's what the Brilliance Box is. It's a way for staff to leave each other positive feedback and say this time that you did this, I thought that was really cool. And thank you. And people love getting that. And what I love about doing it is like I get to spread some good news for a change. It makes me feel warm and fuzzy and also like it extends really often outside of our department and so often I get to contact people from other departments and be like Edie thought you did a really great job and I just think that that does so much for reducing tribalism and spreading collegiality and also makes us look like a really nice caring department and it's been taken up by other departments like I think Blacktown ED one of their trainees contacted me and I sent her all my resources and she set it up there Anesthetics here I think have introduced it themselves as well and um, so it's there's no no reason that it couldn't be extrapolated to other departments and it all might run slightly differently, but I think the idea is still the same. And the other thing that I really deliberately try to do is that I send the positive feedback, not only to the person who's received it, but also to whomever is responsible for their supervision. So that like someone higher up is actually also getting the feedback that their junior is doing a really good job too, because it's important to show that like not for the person who's receiving the feedback. It's like, we don't just want you to know, we want your boss to know that you're doing really well.
3: I also think it's even more important that we all give each other that good feedback because I think back to when I was a registrar and, you know, a JMO, and actually it wasn't infrequent that patients brought cards or thank yous or, you know, chocolates and things in, but we weren't dealing with, the access block, the long waits, the no beds. And so actually patients don't give those thanks anymore, but we can't blame them. That's because their experience, unfortunately, has not been ideal. And actually, I think, like you say, that that increases the importance of us giving that positive feedback to each other for the, you know, the effort and the achievements.
6: To me, people who are burnt out are less likely to participate in you know, all those Changes, things that might just sort of bring about change. So I don't know how they, these different articles went about sort of um, recruiting people, and then we had this discussion about, you know, um coming up with ideas and suggestions to sort of like make a bit of a difference at the workplace. And again, I see people at kind of like a bit of a spectrum. If you are at the end and you are burnt out, you're less likely to engage and to bring about ideas and things like that. So, and sometimes people even don't realize that they're burnt out and, you know, they they won't sort of like just come up with a variety of ideas to change the culture, change, you know, the workplace situation that they're dealing with. It kind of like falls onto other people who know about this and they probably are more kind of like responsible to, to do all these things, bring about all the changes, you know, suggest the solutions and things like that, just so that the rest of the, you know, the people don't end up in that bottom end of the you know the spectrum where you are completely sort of withdrawn and you don't want to engage in, in too many activities at the workplace. It's a bit hard because it kind of like sometimes feels like a vicious cycle. So you, the people who've experienced it probably don't realize it and they're too withdrawn. And the people who have not experienced it, they're probably just feeling great because they don't have that experience. So maybe there's no change needed. So I don't know how we sort of like balance this out.
2: Well, I think you're right. And I think one of those papers alluded to that, that the participants who engaged more actively had better improvements in their perceived well-being. And I suppose that makes sense, right? Like the more you put in, the more you get out. But I think you're right. I think there's a cohort for whom you are too burnt out to even be able to engage with these sorts of interventions. And it's well established that the only intervention that will work in those scenarios is time away from work, like no amount of workplace based intervention is going to be effective here. You actually just need time away from work.
5: Possibly slightly more higher level is actually having positive experiences of engaging with the system. I've gone through a whole variety of different sort of stages of feeling burnt out, um, you know, over the last few years, as I'm sure everyone does. But I think one thing that really sort of helps me feel positively about my workplace is actually seeing things change. When you bring an idea to a department and you say, you just put something forward as, you know, I think this is potentially beneficial, even something along the lines of us being, you know, proposing that we bring Natalie to help out our trainees. And then that is able to actually be implemented that in and of itself demonstrates that the department cares because the department is actually listening and taking proactive steps to, you know, make an effort. There's a statistical concept called the Hawthorne effect, and I think that it has. There's almost an irony here because the Hawthorne effect, in normal statistical studies, refers to the participants of the study improving their performance or the effect or whatever purely as a result of being aware that they're being studied. So, you know, the classic Hawthorne study was they increased the brightness of the lights in a factory and found that there was an improvement in performance. But you know, as, as they did the trial, it became apparent that it wasn't because of the light in the in the factory. It was just because people knew that they were being studied. The irony in the well-being space is that I think people being aware that people are studying well-being and people being aware that there are well-being interventions being put in place actually specifically has its own positive cultural impact because it provides people with hope to know that there is engagement and there are people who are actually enthusiastic about making your day better. And that intrinsically has a positive effect, even separate to whatever well-being intervention is being performed. So there's a little interesting irony there.
2: What that also demonstrates, though, is that there is an organizational responsibility to actually take that feedback and to try to enact some of those suggestions because I think the converse is true if there's someone who's very motivated and well-intentioned making all these suggestions and it falls on deaf ears, that that's actually even more demoralizing.
0: I know that a lot of our system issues can't be fixed overnight, like bed block and you know wait times and all that kind of thing. But I think getting everyone in a room, including the people higher up and actually having a productive conversation about it might actually make everyone feel a whole lot better about the scenario, particularly if we felt that people higher up were engaged in trying to make change and maybe gave us some understanding of the difficulties behind making those changes. All difficult to implement, I'm sure.
4: I don't mean to point Diane out, but after reading that article, did you have any thoughts as to what you thought should be implemented?
1: I guess there's a few things that I've stood out for me, and that was that involvement from kind of higher up, so like board level management staff, was at least shown in some of the studies to actually make a difference to staff well-being. I guess I don't know you know the specifics of our health system and how involved people higher up are, but I think that really needs to be considered because you know we know how burnout affects our clinical care and we know negative staff well-being has such a big impact on our performance. And I just think there needs to be more sort of buy-in from seniors. The other thing is you know these whole system interventions, there are just not many studies available on it. And I think that maybe more research just needs to be done. Because if we can prove you know, that all these different interventions are going to make a difference to us, then it's going to be much easier to bring into an organizational standpoint.
3: I think one of the biggest things, like you say, interventions that can help with some of the system stuff is focusing initially on the basics, which is that departments are staffed adequately, that you know the staff can access, breaks and leave and, you know, their ADOs and all those sorts of things, reasonable rostering, reasonable workload. And like you said, there are lots of other things. I mean, if I think to my utopia of coming to work, right, it's very different to my lived reality. It starts with the staffing, you know, it starts with the patient coming in the way they're meant to, you know, they walk through the doors, whether via foot or via ambulance, they got brought into a clinical bed space, myself and the nurse greet the patient Take a history. I mean, you're all laughing, and that's because we don't do that, right? But actually, there's lots of other things too where it surprised me. There's bigger picture ideas. You know, we've built this brand new hospital, but for example, you know, there's all these these floors and there's empty shelves. But what about valuing people as a, a unit and a human? So we could have done things where there's an entire sort of level where staff can come together like expected sort of meal breaks or beginning or end of shift where we actually mix departments your bags go and you actually you know have to interact together where there's childcare within, so you can bring your family and network with, you know, there's a whole heap of things that we can do, but I think the reality is starting with the basics, what matters is, you know, we need to look at basic care, which is the staffing levels and making sure that people have access to the basic needs during a shift and that they actually have access to leave.
0: Everyone's brought some really, really interesting ideas to the table. I agree. I think having adequate staffing and the basics might be the best place to start. But if anyone listening would like to add their two cents, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is Westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com. If anyone wants to send in their ideas, I'm definitely happy to organise an additional episode to discuss any ideas that come to the table if we get any. But for now, why don't we wrap up, Diane, would you like to give us some take-home points from this paper?
1: I think one take-home point is that whole system interventions Kind of broadly applied to all healthcare workers have been shown to improve well-being and i think the the second point is that this is a under-researched area more research uh, should be done in the future so that we can find out how to best things
0: last but not least we have natalie harman a clinical counsellor and psychotherapist currently working at westmead hospital will be presenting an interlude for us today.
7: For my interlude, I'm going to talk about self-compassion. Before I describe and explain what self-compassion is and how we practise it, I thought it would be useful to give some context around the work that I do with the junior doctors at Westmead. So undoubtedly, the hospital is a stressful place to be for junior doctors with most of my clients reporting high stress levels and being exposed to direct and vicarious trauma they work long hours night shifts rotating shifts and most report being chronically sleep deprived they carry high levels of responsibility hypervigilance understandably of making mistakes And as we've discussed, the experience of moral injury is really high right now. I also hear about low levels of acknowledgement and reward and a hierarchical culture. And most clients report a constant battle within to balance and integrate their home life and their work life. It's also a very competitive environment for junior doctors, continuous assessments and very gruelling exams and job interviews and careers to progress. It's extremely stressful. There's much comparison to others and high levels of perfectionism. I hear lots of very harsh self-critical narratives that exacerbate anxiety and stress. And one way that we can cope with all of this, one tool that we do have is self-compassion. So what self-compassion is not is self-care. Um, self-care is very, very important and it's usually how we work with burnout. So. There's plenty of ways to self-care. There's um, exercise and spending quality time with friends, spending time in nature uh, with creative activities and so on. And these are really beneficial and really important in healthcare. However, it's not self-compassion. Self-care cannot always be done in the moment when on the job and when one's exhausted but self-compassion is a tool that we have that we always have with us if we've learned and practiced it. Self-compassion is also not self-pity this is when we become immersed in our own problems and we forget that others suffer too and self-compassion is not a weakness or a selfish practice. I'd like to uh, distinguish between self-compassion and self-esteem as well. Self-compassion is not contingent on competence or success, failure and so on. Um, Self-esteem is our judgement around our competence and worth and and this is not what self-compassion is. So self-compassion, what is it? So compassion, let's start with what compassion is. Compassion is the recognition of pain or suffering in others or self and the wish to alleviate it. It's often called empathy in action. Compassion is an active practice. Though so most healthcare professionals find compassion for others quite easy, and their whole career and vocation is centered around this. However, most healthcare professionals also um, find that compassion for self is quite difficult to practice and very far from automatic. So quite simply, self-compassion is a healthy way of relating to oneself, especially when we are stressed, anxious or feeling inadequate. And it's motivated by desire to help rather than harm ourselves. It's an attitude. We especially need self-compassion at times when we do make mistakes or when we're in despair and distressed. And it's a perfect antidote to perfectionism and harsh self-criticism. It's also a skill. It's something that's learned and practiced so that when we acutely need it, it's automatically available. And I spend many sessions with um, doctors at Westmead facilitating self-compassionate practices within the counseling space. I'm going to refer to Kristen Neff's work here. She's a psychologist based in the USA and she's researched self-compassion. And she describes self-compassion as having three pillars. The first pillar is self-kindness. This is treating oneself with respect, care, and warmth. And just as we would attend to a friend or a child, a patient, a family member, who are in need or who are feeling distressed. This is how we would treat ourselves, how we would approach ourselves. We internalize that compassion that we would have towards others and direct it towards ourselves. So we don't judge ourselves harshly for our limitations or flaws. Instead, we offer ourselves support and unconditional acceptance. So it's an active process. We soothe and comfort ourselves when distressed, providing our own internal emotional support. And it's a really excellent way to meet our stress without becoming completely overwhelmed. Kristen Neff also talks about common humanity as being the second pillar of self-compassion. This is acknowledging that this is a shared human experience, that suffering or distress is a shared human experience. We all feel pain, we're all challenged, we're all imperfect. And we take out the I in that experience and we thus have a more interconnected perspective on this, feeling less isolated in our pain. And the third pillar is mindfulness. So a clear and present awareness of the moment. In order to be compassionate, we first need to be aware that we're suffering, that we're challenged, that we're in need. And we also need to not over-identify with our thoughts and emotions because wallowing can lead to a negative sense of self. So there is a fair bit of evidence now around self-compassion, the benefits and outcomes. It's been associated with optimism, with greater happiness, improved social relationships, and even wisdom. It's been directly associated with resilience and better coping, and research suggests that veterans are less likely to attempt suicide or develop PTSD if they are self-compassionate. There is some evidence that self-compassionate healthcare professionals experience less stress less sleep disturbance, less burnout, and experience improved mental health. But it's clear that this is an under-researched area. So how do we practice self-compassion? How do we learn this? There's probably too much to go into in this interlude, but some of the ways are compassionate meditations, self-compassionate journaling and letter writing. There's visualizations and imagery techniques. And we can learn some of this and experience self-compassion through certain counselling approaches too. The key thing is that self-compassion skills and compassion skills are learned. And again, the evidence suggests that once learned and practised, they're maintained really well over time. I think that we are moving towards a more compassionate workplace in hospitals. We've got a long way to go, but wellbeing programmes like the one at ED and ICU at Westmead, are here now. Wellbeing is a focus and there's traction in concepts such as Compassionate rostering, Schwartz Rounds, which are British concept and practice that are actually in Australia right now, these reflective practices with compassion at the centre. So I'll just conclude with a few questions and reflections. So I'd urge you to contemplate how you typically react to yourself and your life. And what type of things do you judge and criticize about yourself, about your work, about your parenting, about your appearance? What language do you use? What does your inner voice sound like? Who does it sound like? Is it insulting? And what are the consequences of being so critical on self? How do you feel and behave afterwards? What impact does this have on you and others?
0: That concludes our three-part series on healthcare worker well-being and burnout. We hope this series has served to raise awareness for this very important issue and perhaps started a discussion on ways we can work together to combat something that ultimately affects us all. If you have found that any of the content from this episode has been triggering for you, please seek assistance. You can contact the 24-7 helpline at Doctors for Doctors, for which New South Wales number is 9437 6552, or Lifeline at 13 In addition, all local health districts have access to an employee support program, which can provide 24 seven services. So please speak to someone, you are not alone. If you have any thoughts, suggestions or questions, please do not hesitate to contact us at westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com. Otherwise, we will be back in your ears shortly with a series on critical care Featuring Alex Yartsev from Deranged Physiology.
5: Colleagues, thank you. I'm Alex Yartsev, Random Intensivist from Westmead ICU. Physostigmine specifically, it's a drug that I always think about and never give. Digging into the history of this substance is fascinating.
1: See you then.